everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman Stephen King book podcast where yours truly, a university fiction teacher, is making her way across all Stephen King titles, paying particular attention to those underrated works that need a lot more spotlight. Welcome, everyone, to our last investigation, our last novella inside Four Past Midnight. It is indeed Four Past Midnight with today's episode of The Sundog. Oh man, this was fun, folks. This was absolutely a thrill ride, and I really was pleased that King decided to close this novella collection with such a rich narrative. So lots of great stuff to explore today. We, of course, are going to maintain our traditional format, exploring this 150-page novella. Thus far on the programming, we have taken a long look at The Langoliers, the first First novella within Four Past Midnight. We then jumped over to Secret Window, Secret Garden, and then our latest episode was Three Past Midnight's The Library Policeman. Oh, still recovering from that one. Wow. So if you haven't yet explored those, I recommend jumping back and doing so now. If it's been a hot minute since you've read Four Past Midnight, definitely give yourself a little bit of time to explore those novellas yet again. Once more, as always, I do my very, very best to not (laughs) overtly ruin anything with spoilers. However, in my literary analysis, in the investigations, I sometimes out of I don't know, the heat of the moment or just my overflowing emotional cauldron will let a few things slip. I hate doing that. I'm sorry in advance. So please make sure you have a good idea what major plot points are before heading into these episodes. I do my best. Does my best always deliver? Negative. So (laughs) we are going to first explore strengths within the sundog as well as head into our characters transition into criticisms, and then lastly, we're going to talk about the entire novella collection as a whole. We're going to maybe have a little bit of a ranking if all goes well, but I do want to explore this particular novella collection and how it stacks next to such powerhouse hitters as different seasons, who we all love and adore. If we don't, please make sure you're reading it carefully because there are some stellar stellar diamonds in different seasons, as well as my personal favorite, Full Dark No Stars. If It Bleeds is also a strong contender, so we've got some wonderful, beautiful, rich, iconic Stephen King novella collections, which are comprised of four tales, and I just, I love them so much, guys. I just love these collections. They give me life. They inspire me. I'm just so, so moved. So we will see where Four Past Midnight stacks against some of those other heavy hitters, some of those favorites, and take a look at the collection as a whole. So we definitely have a lot to cover, but before we head into the meat and potatoes of this episode, we gotta hear from King. We gotta take a look at a chunk of one of his really lovely forewords that he gives before each novella. I so enjoy hearing from King right before I read a tale. I know that it's it's good at the end of the tale as well, but there's something about preparing myself with a little bit of King wisdom before we head directly into the story. So this is a chunk of 
King's perspective and observations heading into the sundog that I wanted to share with everybody. This can be found on page 608 in the American hardcover. I am doing what I do for most serious reasons, love, money, and obsession. The tale of the irrational is the sanest way I know of expressing the world in which I live. These tales have served me as instruments of both metaphor and morality. They continue to offer the best window I know on the question of how we perceive things and the corollary question of how we do or do not behave on the basis of our perceptions. I have explored these questions as well as I can within the limits of my talent and intelligence. I am no one's National Book Award or Pulitzer Prize winner, but I'm serious, all right. If you don't believe anything else, believe this. When I take you by your hand and begin to talk, my friend, I believe every word I say. A lot of the things I have to say, those really serious things, have to do with the small town world in which I was raised and where I still live. Stories and novels are scale models of what we laughingly call real life, and I believe that lives as they are lived in small towns are scale models of what we laughingly call society. The idea is certainly open to argument, and argument is perfectly fine. Without it, a lot of literature teachers and critics would be looking for work. I'm just saying that a writer needs some sort of launching pad, and aside from the firm belief that story may exist with honor for its own self, the idea of the small town as social and psychological microcosm is mine. I began experimenting with this sort of thing in Carrie and continued on a more ambitious level with Salem's Lot. I never really hit my stride, however, until the dead zone. So one thing that's absolutely delightful about the Sundog is that this is indeed a Castle Rock story. Apparently within King's catalog, there are several novels and stories that take place in the town of Castle Rock. I have read a few, Salem's Lot being one of them, however, it doesn't really count. Jerusalem's Lot is the town right next to Castle Rock, as we all know, but I have read The Dead Zone. Lots of Castle Rock featuring prominently there. We've got Frank Dodd, the serial killer who echoes throughout that story, and I think Cujo, I think, as well as a couple others. I hear The Dark Half is a heavy Castle Rock story, as well as Needful Things, which I really need to shake a leg and read, because I've heard that one is just rich and lovely and a huge ensemble cast novel. So, I'm a huge fan of Castle Rock and love any time we get that city explored and opened up before our eyes. Personally, I'm a huge fan of Harlow, Maine. I really think a lot more cool stuff goes down in Harlow. Just me, but Castle Rock's pretty rad. This is my very first time meeting the character of Pop Merrill. We're going to talk more about that in our character section, but I believe he has appeared in other stories as well, as well as his nephew Ace Merrill, who was one of the bullies found within the body. So it was kind of nice to get some character echoes. That is always, always, always a delight. But this novella is definitely a bright little link in the Castle Rock conglomerate. So really looking forward to exploring that further with all of you. And without further ado, I think there's a young man with a broken Polaroid camera that might need our help. Why don't we go take a look and see what shakes loose? Let's start the show.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what we forgot in the intro? We completely forgot our summary. My goodness gracious. Let's have a quick summary about what Sundog is all about before we get into the strengths. Okay. Kevin Delavan gets a Polaroid Sun 660 camera for his 15th birthday and discovers when he takes pictures, there's something rather peculiar in the right-hand corner, something very odd. It's worth taking the camera to the Emporium Galorium to see if shop owner Pop Merrill can fix it. Mr. Merrill is quite confounded by such an object, and after the attempted science experiments to figure it out fail, Merrill starts shopping it around to the highest bidder. Thinking the camera destroyed, young Kevin starts to have the most upsetting nightmares. A dog coming closer, baring its fangs, getting closer and closer to him until his teeth latch down. All right, everyone, this is the strength section. I have two-ish categories for you, two and some change that I really want to expand upon in this area. And firstly, I want to touch on the topic that is king and specific pop culture. I absolutely love this, guys. So for those constant readers out there who have really made their way through King's works, a lot of this will hopefully ring true. And if you're a new King person, definitely keep your eyes out for it. King, as an American writer, has spoken about using commercial brand names in his works, which I kind of see the good and the bad too. On the one hand, King talks about being as specific as possible. He mentioned in an interview in regards to his writing style, you're not going to open the medicine cabinet and take an aspirin, just a generic thing. For him, in King's world, you're going to take a Tylenol or a Bayer, something specific. That's how he likes to operate. So I do see the bumpy side to this. If you have international readers, and these are quintessentially American products such as Hamburger Helper in Lisey's Story. Lisey's Story definitely has one where our homegirl Lisey gets hungry one night and decides to make some Hamburger Helper. And if you are unaware what that is, that definitely takes you out of the moment a little bit. Here in the States, it's definitely something that we're familiar with because it's on grocery store shelves. But for global readers, I kind of shake my head at that. But we are going to talk about how King specifically highlights a certain American product, a certain device that is currently being utilized in his American life. And I actually think it's a huge strength in his work. For example, for those of you guys familiar with the absolutely stellar short story collection called The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, there's a novella within called Ur, or you are, depending on which way you want to say it, potato, potato. But in Ur, King specifically highlights the Kindle. I think that there was maybe a little partnership with Amazon, as a matter of fact. I remember there was something very legitimate between the two where he was going to highlight Kindle, and it was going to be one of the first stories that new Kindle owners could read. It was a big thing. So King went all out for Kindle. If you jump back to my favorite novel collection ever, Full Dark No Stars, in Big Driver, King specifically highlights the Garmin or the GPS, the actual device before Google Maps and Apple Maps kind of got 
really savvy. This was post MapQuest where you were still printing directions out on paper. And then all of a sudden you have this little device that's guiding you exactly where to go. Absolutely revolutionary. Garmin was featured in Big Driver. And then most recently we have the first generation iPhone from Mr. Harrigan's phone. There are so many numerous examples throughout King's work. I haven't read Cell yet, but there you go. The mobile phone industry. King tackles that. But more iconically, let's talk specifically regarding one type of vehicle, the 1958 Plymouth Fury Christine. King decided not just to talk about any other car, but that specific car. He does this again with From a Buick 8. He picked a blue 1954 Roadmaster, Buick Roadmaster. And so I I love this, guys, because he kind of forces the reader to attach themselves to this one object. And of course, The Monkey, the short story within Skeleton Crew, you have this little evil monkey guy slapping symbols. King and haunted objects, it's tremendous. I kind of explore this in greater detail in my Christine episode. But he does such a great job of isolating one specific object and really allowing the reader to latch onto it. And this is a huge example about that. In this story, King chooses and pulls the Polaroid, specifically Polaroid, Sun 660. I used to love these cameras. I think my parents had them when I was younger. Huge camera family in my household, and they're delightful. Everything about it, picture popping out, gray. You kind of wait for the image to form. It's magical. And even though my dad said it didn't take the best pictures, which it kind of didn't, still super fun, huge thing. And so in this story, I made sure I googled it. I had the exact image in my mind. I knew exactly what King was talking about. And that's what made this story very strong for me. I could imagine young Kevin trying to work this camera when Pop Merrill gets his hands on it and tells Kevin to destroy it and it gets smashed. I knew exactly what to envision and that was so, so strong. So I really love this specific example of King utilizing pop culture to highlight one specific tale that is full of spookiness. Really, really cool. And it's everywhere throughout King's work. So if if that is something that you're interested in, sort of the cursed haunted objects, oh my gosh, there's a boatload of them. And King does a wonderful job of making it the forefront of the story. He just does a wonderful job with that. And because we have such a robust catalog over 40 years, we're going to be sneaking up on five decades of his work, if you can believe it. It's really fantastic to realize that this camera was the hot, hot item at the time. King's wife, Tabitha, of course, was toying around with one, and it became a source of inspiration right in his household. So I love this, guys. It's kind of not only a connection to a fantastic tale, We are locked on to a very specific model, a very specific object, and simultaneously, it's pop culture, it's commercial, it's popcorn. He is tapping into his present day. And when you read it now, it's a beautiful time capsule. It really, really is. It's a fantastic time capsule. You can still buy one of these cameras to this day, even though the film is a little bit pricey, but it's extraordinary. It's something I really, really enjoy. 
So for this particular novella of the Sundog, King and the specific pop culture channeling that he does is really great. He leans in very strongly once more to the archetype of the haunted object, the cursed object, and it works. Not only is the camera definitely cursed, it also might be some sort of doorway, some sort of gateway. Oh my goodness, very, very cool really climactic ending, which leads me into my next category of strength, suspense, and mystery. One of the cool themes that we have throughout really all four novellas that I'm noticing is a great deal of mystery. Of course, with the Langoliers, we have no idea where the hell this plane has gone to, what is going on. But for me, the Langoliers definitely ramps it up on the science once they land at the main airport and they're trying to kind of decipher this world, this space that they're taking up. Really cool stuff. In Secret Window, Secret Garden, again, terrific suspense and mystery that echoes into the library policeman. And yet in Sundog, we definitely have it ramped up, but on a smaller scale. It really makes the most of the space it has for sure. It is a Castle Rock story, so we're really going from Kevin's house to Emporium Glorium and not much further than that. But in that space, he really, really ramps up the suspense the mystery, what is going on with this camera. That's what dialed me in. I'm trying to figure out what is making this film look like that. What inside this camera? Who is doing this? Who is behind it? All the five W's. So that was immensely cool to witness. I think that King has some really tremendous use of weaving the mystery and utilizing suspense throughout. This one felt very freaky due to its presence of the paranormal and also kind of tapping into that I can't officially declare if it is a Native American superstition or indigenous superstition, but it's been discussed in past circles that some indigenous groups were very, very concerned with having their picture taken because they believed snapping a portrait of one's likeness, taking one's likeness and putting it onto film, took something, specifically their soul. And I think King works with that a little bit here. Very subtle. He does not overtly say that's what he's doing, but there is something about the media that is photography and what it is to take a picture? What does it do by capturing the light around the subject? Is it capturing just light? Some people would say no, it's taking so much more. So that is kind of dangled in front of the reader a little bit. It really, really works so well. At first, when Kevin is clicking away and enjoying his new camera, he just doesn't understand what he's seeing. And then when he takes it to Pop Merrill's shop, he continues to take photos and it gets progressively worse, guys. And I love the slow burn that King is utilizing here. Because for a while, as the reader, we're not really sure if we should be intimidated or really how we should feel. We're just really curious. What's wrong with this camera? It's brand new. Kevin seems like a normal guy. There's nothing wrong with him. Pops your average Joe here. So nobody is of the occult. No sort of sinister dealings going on with these folk operating the camera. So it must be the camera itself. If it's brand new, that means nobody owned it previously. So now we've got a real humdinger on our laps, right? 
I love that, guys. And it's old school. It's really old school. Just allows the imagination to run wild. What is this thing on the film? In the film, on the film, what is it? Okay, a dog. Whose dog is it? Where does this dog belong? As I'm doing this episode, there's been immense chit-chat over here stateside about deep fake photos, probably internationally. This is a real concern, folks. I mean, deep fake is getting crazy. We're having film and television explore this phenomena in great detail. It's being dramatized. It's right in front of our faces at all times. So what photography is actually capable of is pretty amazing. And I think what would be awesome is we need like a Sundog sequel. Oh, wouldn't that be great, guys? We need a Sundog sequel where perhaps Kevin's all grown up and maybe he's working with AI and tech and he's a Photoshop master. Oh man, we definitely need to get somebody who's a fan fiction enthusiast. We need to get this going, guys. Let's have a baby writers group and let's do a Sundog fan fiction that has our boy Kevin tackling deepfake. It would be amazing. Oh my goodness, I'm getting carried away. But I think it's a tremendous strength, guys. When you really slow down and spend some time with this story, imagine yourself having that small little chunk of plastic in your hands, looking into the viewfinder, and there is this dog. And it's getting closer, and you can see its teeth, you can see its jowls, you can see it in various angles. Oh man, the richness in the narrative details is extraordinary. Simplistic, but powerful. I really, really loved that. And because there's not a lot of plot, not a ton of characters like we have in the other novellas, you're really forced to just spend some time and be present with the sparse details. Sparse, but vivid details. Vivid, vivid, vivid. Super duper cool. And I think that is kind of what I liked most about Sandog. This one is only 150 pages, 150 powerful, well-executed, well-plotted, well-paced pages. But to recap, King's use of specific pop culture is done so well yet again. I hope you check out some of the aforementioned titles if you haven't already. If you're a fan of the Sundog and haven't read those other King works that really feature his keen eye with certain tech devices, moments in pop culture, definitely check them out. Pretty incredible. And then lastly, we've got some tremendous suspense and mystery. Really awesome. Really well done. Old school storytelling, great pacing, simple but powerful. I encourage you to check it out. And it's especially powerful as the last novella in this collection. More on that later. All right, let's now jump to our character section. Grab your film and let's head on to Emporium Galorium. I'll see you there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the character section of the Sundog. 
We don't have a large cast in this one. It is a smaller novella around 150 pages as we previously discussed, but we do have a very rich, very dynamic player that I did want to expand upon a little bit, and that is Reginald Marion Merrill, aka Pop Merrill. So he's probably the character in all caps that I want to talk the most about. The other cast members we'll touch on a little bit is, of course, our shining teenager, Kevin Delavan, newly 15, his younger sister, Meg, who I believe was about 10 to 12. I don't know if I got a solid age on Meg. And then Mr. Delavan, I'm also missing a name for dad, but dad Delavan, we're also going to talk about those because like I mentioned, this one is a small story, a Castle Rock story, one family, and Pop Merrill. But I have never read anything with Pop Merrill previously. My exposure to Pop Merrill has thus far been the Castle Rock miniseries on Hulu, and I believe other constant reader friends of mine say that he features prominently in... Is it Needful Things? It might be. Or maybe that was Alan Pangborn. Oh my goodness, so many King characters to juggle, especially some of the recurring repeating ones. But Pop Merrill, I do believe, shows up in more than one King iteration. I do know his nephew Ace Merrill. I do, I do, I do know that gentleman because he did pop up in the body with our sweet cast of young men on their way to Harlow to see the dead body, I believe. I always forget if they were coming from Harlow or going to Harlow. Anyway, I do know Ace Merrill is a no-good little scoundrel, so I am familiar with Ace Merrill. I kind of wish we would have had some interaction between Pop and Ace in this story, but we do not. Here's what I love about Mr. Pop Merrill. So for those of you constant readers that know a significant amount, do forgive me. I'm just discovering him for the very first time with this story. Pop is definitely in his late 60s, early 70s. And what I really love about this character is not only is he the owner of this very quirky shop, the Emporium Galorium, with just knickknacks, bric-a-brac, tchotchkes, all kinds of miscellaneous media all over the place. But, and this is what I absolutely love about this character, he's not really a great guy. Uh, this guy's a grifter capital G. This guy knows his way around money. He is one of those who is really focused on money, handling it well, and maybe making more of it on the side. He has that grifter mindset, and I love that because some of my favorite Stephen King stories, coincidentally, all kind of have a grifter element to them, Joyland being one of them with the carny culture as well as Revival, in which the fifth business of Charles, I always forget his name. I don't know if it's Charles Daniels, Mr. Charles. It's not Charles Manson. (laughs) Anyway, the main villain within Revival, he takes on a kind of grifter persona, lots of carny elements, parlor tricks, pulling a fast one on the rubes, I want to believe that maybe Pop Merrill was a blueprint for these future stories where King really explores that carny element within his novels. 
He also does this a little bit, a lot of it, inside of Dr. Sleep within the True Knot. They are a caravan culture, very much wandering gypsies, and they are all about stealing from suckers, quite literally stealing life force from suckers. So very, 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 very interesting. Pot Merrill blueprint for this sort of grifter motif we see within the later King's works, and it's so fun. It's so fun. What's interesting about Pop Merrill is he does give forth that grandfather, oh, come take a look in my shop, a very sweet old man kind of vibe. But one of the most brilliant parts of the Sun Dog is this wonderful monologue that Mr. Delavan, Kevin's dad, has trying to explain to him, listen to me, son, do not trust Pop Merrill. He is not a good guy. I'm going to tell you the super big pickle I got caught up in. And there's this wonderful story that Mr. Delavan tells Kevin about the time he made a really stupid bet, a sports bet, of course. Very irresponsible. It was $400. And in the late 80s, that was a significant amount. But what was even more sucky is, of course, he owed Pop Merrill, who charged him crazy high interest. It was something like 20 to $30 a day in interest. Oh my God, horrible. Mr. Delavan worked himself to death for weeks upon weeks. He just barely slept. He was picking up double shifts. He had to keep this huge secret from his wife. Every penny he made went to Pot Merrill, and it was just the worst two months of his life. He hated everything. He barely survived it, and Pot Merrill absolutely exploited this. He didn't cut him any breaks. He didn't care about his suffering. He just made sure that the debt was paid in full or else. Yeah, Pot Merrill, once the reader learns this about him, before we even get to Emporium Glorium, I'm seeing him in a much more negative light. And of course, the story definitely unfolds to reveal that Pop Merrill ain't a good guy. He ain't a good guy as most grifters are not because they're selfish. They will do anything for a buck, but not only a buck, a quick one. And that's Pop Merrill, guys. And I love it. I love it. It's a rich character. King really breaks him down a good amount and shows his grifter side, which is really enjoyable, but yet we don't have too much negativity to make Pop a irredeemable villain. He's got flavor. He's got flavor and complexity, and that's what we want in a good fictional character. That's the message I'm consistently preaching to my students. If you're going to make a villain, okay, you can make an irredeemable villain. That is absolutely all right. You can make them as filthy and nasty and horrible as you want. However, just know your reader is going to hate him or her, and that's all you're going to have. And if that's necessary to your tale, cool, cool. But if you want to shake it up a little bit, let's give that villain a little bit of kindness, a little bit of a backstory to the point where your reader might empathize with him or her. I don't know if we get enough content on Meryl to empathize with him. I don't know if there's too much backstory. I was actually really hungry for that, such as his younger years before he became a ruthless loan shark grifter guy. I would have loved to have seen him in his prime when Castle Rock was young and fresh and bright and shiny. 
perhaps we'll see that in King iterations. But in this tale, before we even get to the shop, because of course, Kevin's camera's busted and acting really weird and this dog's appearing on the film and all this creepy stuff. Before the reader even gets there, Pop Merrill puts a bad taste in our mouth. We understand he's not kind. He is not a generous person. He might argue that. Oh, of course he's very generous, but all that generosity is at a price. It is quid pro quo always with Mr. Merrill. So, interesting character, definitely steals the show as that grifter kind grandpa in disguise, yet ruthless and cunning. And we see this when he pulls a fast one in the plot. Throughout the story, once Pop Merrill does his own scientific reasoning to rule out that the camera isn't just broken, but might be cursed, he visits three extra special money-wielding folks that would be interested in an item such as this. They turn him down flat, of course, but he steals the camera from Kevin and does a bait and switch and makes Kevin smash a perfectly good Sun 660 that wasn't his actual camera. So Kevin thinks the camera's destroyed. Meanwhile, Pop takes it to the highest bidder to see how much cash he can get for it. Slimy grifter Pop Merrill, and of course, it blows up in his face. He does get the ultimate comeuppance at the end. It was quite enjoyable. It might have been a little too harsh, perhaps. But Pop Merrill is someone I loved, guys. I enjoyed every second I had with him on the page. I wasn't sure how deep my dislike would go, but there were also elements of admiration as well as interest. I definitely wouldn't mind hanging around Emporium Galorium. I would never trust Pop Merrill. No, no, no. He's also King provides a scene that reveals his dirty old man nature. He's really pervy with the convenience store cashier. That was a scene I felt could have been chopped. More on that in our criticism section. But yeah, Pot Merrill, interesting guy. Don't trust him. Lots of good character content around Pot Merrill. So he is someone I'm actually looking forward to reading more about in the future, King Tales, as I make my way there on my King journey. Next, we have Kevin Delvin. Kevin, I feel, wasn't fleshed out as much as I would have liked. He's 15. He's really interested in photography. That's about it. This poor little lamb, we don't have a lot to work with. He's a decent big brother. I don't know about his school life, his friends, what he's into, what he wants to be when he grows up. I, I think King just really put all the focus on Pop Merrill and the actual spooky camera. I think that's where the majority of King's concentration was because I just don't have a lot with Kevin. But I love what we get in the later half of the story when Kevin starts to have these incredibly frightening dreams in which a dog is after him. He is encountering various human characters in his dream who are advising him about this dog and what to watch out for. So these dreams are really becoming premonitions. He does not understand them. He is immensely uncomfortable. So I enjoy the perspective that we get from young Kevin. And this guy is just a sweet baby angel who got duped hardcore by Pop Merrill. He thought he destroyed the camera, smashed it to pieces, 
So he doesn't understand why he's having these dreams. And I think Kevin is one of those sweet people in horror films who are absolutely innocent of all the shenanigans. And they just happen to step into the sticky spot where there is some sort of demonic activity some sort of possession, and he's just like an innocent guy. So very sad when one looks at it from that lens, but I am a little nervous for Kevin, especially when we get to the end of the novella. But I love that it is from a young person's perspective, and 15 seems much younger in the late 80s than it does now. I think with social media, 15 is a lot older seemingly, uh, at least on camera or IRL, as the kids say, than it was back then. We don't hear about him getting excited to drive or playing sports. There's just not a lot to Kevin. I wish we would have had a little bit more there. But one sibling that does give some comedic scene-stealer moments is Meg Delavan. She is too funny, too cute. Oh my goodness. So pretty much every time Meg's on the page, she's a little cutie who's making me laugh. She, in the first scenes, is watching Chucky, and there's a lot of (laughs) humorous back and forth on this little red devil doll. Meg is cute, really nice one-liners. She's a gem, so I would have liked more of Meg inside this story. I wish some of her comedy could have been extended just a little bit more, but like I mentioned, we got a small cast, guys, so with that small cast, I was hoping King would have provided just a bit more details, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay that this story was mostly about the mysterious film inside the camera, the mysterious camera in general, like something is very, very, very wrong with this camera and who owned it previously, what is this dog? So that's where the reader's mind is. So it's okay that these characters are a little bit flat and underdeveloped because we are focused on this gothic mystery as well as the crafty, slithery shenanigans of Pop Merrill and ultimately how the two crash into each other. So really, really cool. But I did enjoy the characters that we were provided Pop Merrill's a gem, even though he's a little slithery, a little slimy. I really, really enjoyed reading about him. I'm excited for more. Let's head into our final section where we're going to talk about some criticisms, some questions, as well as my final thoughts on Four Past Midnight. I'll see you there. Hello, friends. In the spirit of forgetting everything, (laughs) I think this is one of those episodes where everything is just backwards and in shambles, and who knows exactly why, but we're just gonna go with it. Usually in the character section, I always read an excerpt of text. Of course, that was missed, so let's start on the little excerpt that I wanted to read to you guys that kind of highlights the coolness of Pop Merrill. This is found on page 672 in the American hardcover. Going down the stairs, Pop Merrill was as happy as a clam at high tide. He had been prepared to make the switch right in front of them if he had to. Might have been a problem if it had been just the boy, who was still a year or so away from thinking he knew everything, but the boy's dad. 
Ah, fooling that fine fellow would have been like stealing a bottle from a baby. Had he told the boy about the jam he'd gotten into that time? From the way the boy looked at him, a new, cautious way, Pop thought Delavan probably had. And what else had the father told the son? Well, let's see. Does he let you call him Pop? That means he's planning to pull a fast one on you. That was for starters. He's a low-down snake-in-the-grass son. That was for seconds. And, of course, there was the prize of them all. Let me do the talking, boy. I know him better than you do. You just let me handle everything. Men like Delavan were to Pop Merrill what a nice platter of fried chicken was to some folks. Tender, tasty, juicy, and all but falling off the bone. Once Delavan had been little more than a kid himself, and he would never fully understand that it wasn't Pop who had stuck his tit in the ringer, but he himself. That man could have gone to his wife, and she would have tapped that old bitty aunt of hers whose tight little ass was lined with hundred-dollar bills, and Delavan would have spent some time in the doghouse. But she would have let him out in time. He not only hadn't seen it that way, he hadn't seen it at all, and now, for no reason but idiot time, which came and went without any help from anyone, he thought he knew all there was to know about Reginald, Mary, and Merrill, which was just the way Pop liked it. Why, he could have swapped one camera for the other right in front of the man, and Delavan never would have seen a goddamn thing. That was how sure he was, yet old Pop figured out. But this was better. You never asked Lady Luck for a date. She had a way of standing men up just when they needed her the most. But if she showed up on her own, well, it was wise to drop whatever it was you were doing and take her out and wine and dine her just as lavishly as you could. That was one bitch you always put out if you treated her right. <laughs> a little more crass than we usually do here on the show, but I loved that scene because we are directly hearing from Pot Merrill we're getting all the grit and grime and grease of the grift. He is not a good guy. He is not completely irredeemable. But we are just getting a lot of the ick. And I like that character building. I like hearing from the yucky voice sometimes. Sometimes it's a bit much. When King is writing from the villain's perspective, ugh, sometimes it's horrific. For example... Brady Hartsfield, the main villain within the first Mr. Mercedes novel, Mr. Mercedes, and then the last one, End of Watch, he is despicable. And so when King writes from his perspective, I remember really hating that. But Pop is gross. He's not the best, but I do enjoy hearing what he has to say. For whatever reason, he's the lovable villain that I've kind of taken a liking to, probably because I'm just interested in his backstory. How did you get so gross? How did you get so slithery and shifty? I really want to know when he started ripping people off and if he kind of had that carny spirit put into him. I think that's what it is. I have a real shine and affinity for King's carny folk and those who are ready to pull a fast one on the rubes. That is my favorite. But now let us head into the criticism section. I don't have too many, folks. This was a smaller novella. I think it was the smallest. I might be incorrect on that, but it was definitely not as robust as the other stories we've explored in the collection thus far. The only one I will mention, of course, is the extended scene from the perspective of the cashier girl. 
I know I've mentioned in other episodes, I'm not a huge fan. I know I talked about this extensively in the second Dark Tower installment, which was Drawing of the Three. What I didn't like about that novel, and what King kind of does within this story that reminded me of it, is he'll jump to a completely random person and give them the POV. Suddenly, the cashier girl is narrating about Pot Merrill, and she's talking about how inappropriate he looks at her, but she hasn't really seen him in a couple days, so we're hearing the story from a completely random individual. She has zero connection to Kevin Delavan or the Delavan family. She's just this random person, and in Drawing of the Three, King does that constantly. We're in New York City, and he's just bouncing around into the POVs of every single person. There's the flight attendant, there's the guy who works at the convenience store, there's the taxi car driver, and I'm like, King, I don't care! I don't care. I don't want to see the world from these people's eyes. Yes, it's kind of cool because you're really just doing a lot of narrative play, and you're putting the reader inside this space that's completely foreign and random, and we're trying to connect the story from their eyes. So, yes, I mean, academically, I see the skill level, but I was so invested in the quartet. I did no. I take no. Take me back to their POV, please. I want to see the world from Roland's eyes, Eddie's, Suzanne. That's who I care about. I don't care about these other people. That's just my personal thing, guys. I know a lot of people love it. A lot of people have zero problem with random POVs from throw-in characters. I have a big problem with it. It's just something that pulls me out of the story because If I have not heard of you earlier in the narrative, if I'm not holding and spinning the plate of you and your name in my mind, I don't want to know. I'm doing work when I'm reading a story, right, guys? Like, we are consistently working at it. We are memorizing, holding on to the plot, keeping things in our mind's eye, thinking about what could possibly happen. It's a very active cerebral practice. And so all of a sudden I get the POV from this random character I've never heard of before. Did I hear about her previously? Was she mentioned? How is she connected? Nope, it's just a rando. I get upset by that. That's just me. I understand if you like it, great. More power to you. You can like it all you like. I am a little bit of a brat with it, just because that's me. So there's that scene toward the end when suddenly the camera has taken on some strength. It's got a little bit of heft in terms of its sinister dealings that this cashier girl has a very extended monologue talking about Pop Merrill, how she hasn't seen him, he might be missing. But if he was, it's probably good riddance anyway because he's an old dirty man. I don't care. I don't care. Let's scrap that. Let's get back to the camera. Let's get back to the Emporium Glorium. I want to know what's going on with Kevin. Chop, chop, chop these flabby bits. Let's make it tighter. So that is really the only criticism. And of course, if I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit, on the podcast, I consistently talk about how King is not a world builder. He's just not. He is a writer who discovers the story as he's writing it. So this would have been awesome if we would have had a little bit of world building in terms of Kevin's dreams. What exactly the dog represents? Is it just a hellhound? Was the dog... I don't know. Let's really nerd out, guys. Was the guy owned by Frank Dodd, who's the serial killer inside the dead zone? 
Was he owned by some other sinister character? And what is the significance of the camera? I, I, King could have really brought some lore to the table, but he doesn't. He does not do that. We have a really climactic final scene, guys, where it's quite explosive, as in there are literal explosions and crazy portals and dimensions opening up and a lot of lore with this sort of like reverse Medusa effect using a different camera. It's always very cool. I really enjoyed the final moments of this story, but I I was hungry for a little more lore. I know at the beginning of the episode, we talk about that Native American proverb about losing one's soul and it getting captured inside a camera. That's such a cool concept. It's such a cool premise. And if King was toying with that idea, I was hoping that could be fleshed out a little more. A little more lore, but King will always leave you disappointed in that area. Sometimes not, though. I was really pleased with the 2021 title, Hard Case Crime of Later. There was a lot more lore in there than I thought. I loved the hell out of that. That was so, so pleasing. And of course, The Dark Tower is a fantastic example of King putting lore in place. Really works quite well. But here, left wanting a little bit more. But The Sundog is a perfect, spooky, gothic little tale and a great character introduction for Pop Merrill. So lots of strengths here. And I think we can safely head into our final thoughts for Four Past Midnight. Oh man, I know this has taken quite a while to get finished up, guys. This is <laughs> this has been a significant amount of time, but life and circumstances have caused a couple delays, so hopefully as we head into summer, we can make up some lost time, but we have examined The Langoliers, Secret Window, Secret Garden, The Library Policeman, and finally The Sundog. And wow, guys, they... Uh, so I, I don't really know how they're all connected. This one is so strange to me in comparison to If It Bleeds, Full Dark No Stars, different seasons. I think the themes throughout those novella collections are a little more cohesive. And I know that King reminds us that this is about time. It does work a little bit, but it's just, um, it's definitely not as prominent. I think we got to hunt it down a little bit in each of these stories. But when I look back at the collection as a whole, Sadly, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think this collection had the power to knock off those previous novella collections off of my favorites list. Full Dark No Stars is still extraordinary in all caps and has the number one spot. I think different seasons would take the silver and then if it bleeds, definitely the bronze. Four Past Midnight is definitely an honorable mention in the fourth place spot. I think it's because the cohesion between the four stories isn't as prominent, but also I, I do feel I had more problems inside these novellas than I did any of the others. <laughs> Let's have a great big recap, taking a look at all that we've examined succinctly, of course. We won't spend too much time on this because we have all of the episodes now, 
But with the Langoliers, the premise is incredible, guys, right? Like, this is just sci-fi glory to the 10th power. A ton of fun. However, does it fall flat when we reach the end? I think so. I, I think that the payoff wasn't as robust as I would have liked based on the epic interstellar, interdimensional journey those passengers went on. Secret window, secret garden, super dark, super spooky, lots of cool noir featured there. The library policeman, yikes, crazy intense and disturbing in all caps, guys. Like, I really don't think we even needed to get that disturbing. I talk about in that episode with such a hefty crime against a child and, ugh, I don't know. I had some problems with that. And then the sundog, of course, is just an awesome king spook out where it's short and sweet and powerful, memorable, unsettling. And I do believe the sundog is my favorite, guys. If we were to do a ranking, the sundog will take the top spot. And I think that is because I enjoyed it. There wasn't too many paths I got lost on. I got confused. I had to double back. I wasn't overthinking it as I was on some of the other tales. The second spot, and this was very difficult, the second spot will most likely go to Secret Window, Secret Garden, because I just love the gothic noir that's featured there. I love the unreliable narrator we have it was so good. I really, really enjoyed that one. The third, this is, oh, this is so challenging. Oh, God. I, you know, I think it's gonna have to be, oh, man. I thought I knew. I thought going into this portion of the episode that I felt really good, and now, right as we're recording, I'm second-guessing myself. Let's just say, tentatively, I think the Langoliers should be in the third spot with the library policeman last. And this is hard because I really did enjoy the library policeman, ended up reading it twice, probably shouldn't have because I really spiraled with that one. I don't know if everything that King was exploring in that was landing correctly. I think we, <laughs> I think it, there were some problematic areas that weren't working, but some of the strength of that narrative was, wow, incredibly strong. And it made me think of The Outsider. It made me think of a lot of these more advanced King novels where we have this faceless, nameless entity that feeds off of human emotion specifically fear. We have that a lot with Pennywise and the outsider who feeds on grief. Lots of great stuff that is kind of like a giant foreshadowing of what's to come. Really awesome. But, oh man, I think just the unsettling nature of it. We have a very graphic child rape scene. It's awful. Is it well written? Hell yes, it is, which is very difficult to do, but it's unforgettable, unsettling. But when we look at the story as a whole, I don't know if it's it, uh, anyway, I'm getting too far in the weeds on that. You can jump back to part three and examine ad nauseum my thoughts about the library policeman. But yeah, it has to be last just because I had so many issues with it. Langoliers is so cool, and I really would like that one to be rewritten by King. I think that we need to chop some characters and the ending, we need to fix that a little bit. We, it's too sunny, it's too rosy, 
And I don't know if it gels so well with the rest of the story that really got dark and unsettling and mysterious. Very sci-fi, very cool. I would love a 21st century reboot of The Langoliers. So yeah, that would be the breakdown, guys. Number one is The Sundog. It is just delightful. The perfect amount of gothic, mysterious, not a lot of characters. I wish there was a little bit more on the characters we had, but... I still enjoy it. And Pop Merrill, I don't know what happened. I kind of like him. He's a gem. Number one is the Sundog. Number two, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Another gothic delight. Great unreliable narrator. Fantastic. Number three, the Langoliers. And number four, the Library Policeman. Four Past Midnight as a whole is definitely an honorable mention. It does not break the top three. One of these days, we will do a ranking episode of the novella collections because I want to separate short stories, novellas, novels. We got to just categorically keep them balanced. So one of these days, we will thoroughly explore the collections that King has put forth. There are still so many collections I have to finish. I have to finish Night Shift. I have to finish Nightmares and Dreamscapes. There's just so much I got to do. So we're going to save that for a little bit later on. But overall, I'm happy that I took the time to dive into each one of these. Thank you all for being so patient as the life bus crashed into me and delayed a lot of these episodes, so please forgive me. We're going to rally here and see if we can catch up, but that's about all I got. Let us officially wrap up our four past midnight coverage. All done. We will hopefully revisit these at a later time, and I'd love to know your rankings, guys. What are your thoughts on four past midnight? Which one is your number one out of the four and why? Or do you disagree? Should library policemen not be last? Let's talk about them. Let's talk. Now that we've finished them all, let's explore them a little more. I'm eager to hear your thoughts, hear your opinions. I can definitely be swayed. These episodes are always open to discuss these stories. and You can always reach out to me at underratedsk at gmail. Let's chat about them. I hope you enjoyed our coverage thus far. Please rate and review the show if you haven't yet. That would be amazing and so, so kind. And if there is a constant reader in your life or you are brand new to the King community, welcome, welcome, welcome. And I hope that some of these episodes help break down the stories as you make your way through them. But regardless of Wherever you are on your king journey, I would love to say hello. You can reach out on any of the socials. We are not on TikTok though, just cuz, but Insta, Twitter, we're still on there. We would love to hear from you and chat about what you think of the show, what you'd like featured on future episodes, and all the show-related things. So once more, I appreciate all of your listenership. Thank you guys so very much. This one was a little on the clunky side. I promise our organization is definitely stronger on other episodes, but sometimes you just gotta go with it, right? Sometimes you just gotta let it flow. I hope wherever you are in the world, all is well. Coming up soon, I haven't decided yet, but I think we're going back to the Dark Tower with Roland and the Quartet. I am significantly deviating from canon, and I'm heading straight into the wind through the keyhole, and sorry, not sorry. If that's not the next tale, it's a toss-up between that or heading down the fantasy route with Eyes of the Dragon. 
My plan is to read Eyes of the Dragon and then right after take a look at 2022's fairy tale. I've been dying to read it. I'm so excited. I've got those two options, one on the left, one on the right. I am mulling them over. It's either going to be Wind Through the Keyhole or it's going to be Eyes of the Dragon and Fairy Tale. I'll put out a Twitter poll if I can't make up my mind, but until then, thank you all so very much. Take care and I'll talk to you soon.